taking your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. We continue in our reading of Luke's well-known sequel to his gospel, the Acts of the Apostles. As you have heard several times now, the Apostle Paul is in the midst of a lengthy arrest. He is incarcerated. At this point, he has spent two years in Caesarea, and he is about to go before a public tribunal again. He again will have an opportunity to defend himself, and Paul is always pleased by those opportunities, not because he is particularly fixated on finding the one man who will release him, He is always glad to have an opportunity to preach Christ. And you will see again in this reading his great zeal to do so. We we will hear in our reading Paul's conversion story for what is now the third time in the book of Acts. We were brought to it in Acts 9 as Luke narrated its happening. We were brought to it in Acts 22 when Paul preached his first defense under arrest before the people in Jerusalem, and now he will bring it up again. The focus of the message, however, will be what takes place after when Paul is interrupted by Festus and told, Paul, you are out of your mind. Let us read the text after we pray. Our God and Father, we bless your name. Thank you for granting us ears to hear your word. Father, we pray that indeed we would hear with understanding. We ask, Lord God, that the voice of the master would be that voice that we recognize herein, that we give our hearts and minds and wills to it, For he is the one on the throne. And Lord, we pray for your help in this. There are many things that are in us and outside of us that would keep us from being truly blessed by your word. Lord, we pray for grace, that you would grant us help, and that we indeed would be greatly nourished And that the word would be implanted within us meekly by your spirit, by your power. And that we would go forth from this place filled with the light of Jesus Christ through faith by your spirit. In his name, amen. Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, 
if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to, hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had, that, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, 
except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. Well, there we have learned that the church must always be speaking of Jesus Christ in such a way that the world thinks we're out of our mind. This is the lesson from Acts 26. If the way the church speaks of Jesus Christ leaves the people of the world nodding their heads, able to affirm all we have said to them about Jesus, it is probably the case we have not told the truth about Jesus. The truth about Jesus is that he is the eternal Son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary in order to join his divine nature to our human nature so that being in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh on the cross. This is the truth about Jesus. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was dead and buried. In his death as substitute, all the sins of his people received their just penalty. This is the truth about Jesus. On the third day, he was raised up from death. He then ascended to the right hand of God from whence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the truth about Jesus Christ. He now says to all of us believers in Revelation 1.17, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. And then he says in that very same chapter, Revelation 1, It is he who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1.5. Now that is the truth about Jesus Christ. But there is a way to speak about Jesus that leaves the world patting you on the back because you have used Jesus to tell them something they already believe or tell them something they already want, or tell them something they already have. The church, the church that speaks of Jesus this way is a church that begs for the approval of the world. Paul cannot speak of Jesus that way because Paul is not begging for the approval of the world. Even though they have him in custody, even though his future is fragile, even though he is surrounded by all the great men of Palestine, Romans and Jews, in this hall, he does not beg for the approval of the world. So he is free to speak of Jesus in a way that is true, in a way that even leaves a great man like Festus thinking Paul is nuts. Now, when the church speaks of Jesus in a way they are begging for approval of the world, they, are end, they end up bowing before the reasoning 
and bowing before the capacity of fallen men. When this happens, the church makes Jesus a piece of propaganda, a piece of propaganda to affirm the earthly ambitions of fallen men. The Jesus we speak of then is the Jesus who wants to lower taxes for us, too. Or he is the Jesus who wants to solve the problems of immigration, too. Or he is the Jesus who wants to restore our country's patriotic spirit, too. Or he is the Jesus who wants to give us happy families, happy marriages, happy pets, and happy days. That's the propaganda Jesus. A Jesus who will not bother anyone because he only wants what they already want. In our text this morning, Paul does not speak of a Jesus that leaves everyone shaking his hand and patting him on the back and welcoming him into the circle of the reasonable. Now, instead of all that, one of the leading Roman officials in the great hall, Festus the governor, declares loudly before a full audience, if you remember from the last chapter, a full audience of military leaders and prominent men and all of their servants, the room is packed, Instead of all that, Paul declares before that room, or excuse me, Festus declares before that room that Paul is out of his mind. That Paul is mad, deranged. This is Festus's interruption and loud verdict for everyone to hear. And we might think, well, if I were there, I wouldn't have spoken quite like Paul to get that kind of verdict. Woe to us if we wouldn't. Woe to us. The verdict of Festus is that Paul is a delusional fanatic. In verse 24, we have his words. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus thinks Paul has snapped. Festus thinks he has seen this kind of thing before where some people spend so much time in religious texts that they lose touch with reality. Festus thinks Paul's mind has broken off and away from all that is real and reasonable. This is exactly what people often said about the prophets. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the many others. This is even what Joseph's brothers thought about him after they heard his dreams. It's what Pharaoh thought about Moses. And surely this is what we all thought of Abraham when he bound his son and laid him on a wooden altar and raised a knife over his head. Is he out of his mind? When the living God visits a man or a woman and sets his word upon them and within them, it is common for the world to think that that man or woman have gone mad, that the word has made them too extreme, too intense, too religious, too devoted. The accusation even came against our Lord from his own earthly family, his half-brothers, There was a time when Jesus had not been eating because he was so busy teaching. 
Mark 3.21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. The ways of God are not the ways of men. Beloved, there is no way to preach the gospel where everybody in the world says, Oh, that's awesome. Tell us more. There's no way to preach the gospel that gathers the approval and applause of the world. But there is a way to preach the gospel that gathers the approval and applause of the elect. The ways of God are not the ways of men. This is especially true as it concerns our salvation, which is what Paul is speaking of in Acts 26. Festus has heard from Paul that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. Festus has heard Paul say, Jesus alone is light, the light of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. You saw that in verse 23. This is offensive. This is narrow-minded. This is localized religion to a man like Festus. Fallen men want to invent a salvation that either downplays their real dilemma or a salvation that exalts their empty contributions. What does an upper-class Roman official need from Jews? This would be the line of thought in the mind of Festus. But Jesus ran into this exact same pride among the Pharisees. Luke 16, 14 says, They ridiculed him for his doctrine of salvation. They ridiculed him, the Pharisees. They ridiculed him as just another way of saying they thought him crazy. Nuts. How did our Lord reply to those ridiculing Pharisees? He said, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16, 15. Do you agree with Jesus on that? What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. To assure himself of salvation, sinful man exalts his own wisdom, exalts his own reason, exalts his own understanding, exalts his own history, exalts his own heritage, exalts his own personal qualities, exalts his works of the law, exalts his goodness relative to other men. Men exalt these things in their conscience, if not in their mouth, to tell themselves, if there is a judgment day, I will be okay. I'm a Roman. I'm a governor. I have money. I haven't murdered anybody in public. That's Festus, the man who hires mercenaries. Men exalt all these things and then think preachers are insane for not exalting them too. They think the Christian gospel is crazy because it pours contempt on what sinful men exalt and it exalts the one solution they hold in contempt. Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. Beloved, there is no way for the Christian gospel to go forth in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our world without there being a need for the ministry of heaven's grace upon that gospel as it is preached, spoken, or taught. It is not natural to the fallen man. God must come and bless his word. Martin Luther said, the gospel inverts everything and goes against our senses. What our senses call shameful is actually honorable. What our senses call honorable is actually shameful. And those who burn others at the stake are the ones worthy of the fire, while those who are burned are worthy of the throne, which they will possess on judgment day. On that day, it will be made quite plain how things actually are, close quote. It is shameful to a Roman like Festus that Paul would adore a savior who was crucified. You know, they found in Rome a little piece of graffiti that a, a youth had carved into a stone wall in a public park. Probably carved in that wall sometime around 150 AD. And it says underneath the picture, Agamemnon and his God. And it's a picture of a donkey on a cross. And archaeologist scholars consider it to be an anti-Christian piece of graffiti mocking Christians for, for their adoration of a crucified man. It's nuts, they think. To Festus, it is all adoration of weakness adoration of suffering. And for a Roman who doesn't have a word in their vocabulary for humility, the gospel is foolishness. Festus senses, in his senses, Festus sees the cross as shameful, to pick up Luther's language. But to God, the cross of Christ is actually honorable. For it is the wisdom and power of God for reconciling the world to himself. And what did Paul tell the Corinthians? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But there's another part, if you recall, to Luther's wisdom. He said something about our senses calling honorable that which is actually shameful. And what is that? Man's pride. The austere man we call honorable. The wealthy man we call honorable. The wise man, the great man, the good man. We call these men honorable. We call all of these kinds of men honorable when in fact these are all just facades of honor behind which man denies his need for Christ. And what is the strength of his denial? His wisdom. Even his own goodness. It becomes a strength for him to deny his need for a crucified Savior. And so that which is best in that man becomes the most damnable thing about him. 
But men all around him call him honorable. A man who thinks himself good becomes more hardened in his rejection of the Savior. It is actually shameful for men to call themselves good. And so scripture will not take part in this conceit, and it never calls us anything but what we are. Not because scripture desires to offend us, because God's word desires to deliver us from Satan's conceit that we even in our best works, are desperate for a Savior. Because no man is good. No man is righteous. Neither Roman nor Jew. And so when the apostles of Jesus Christ come along and declare that man's predicament is so grim he cannot be saved by the law of the Jews or by the wisdom of the Greeks, people think that apostle is insane. And that's exactly what's happening here in this hall where the prominent men and women have gathered. Paul replies to Festus. You see that in the text. He says, I am not out of my mind. It's kind of wonderful that that's included in Luke's narrative because it reminds us that Paul is a man of the truth and he will correct a lie, especially on an occasion of public address when a lie is spoken. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. But then Paul immediately turns to the other big man in the room. And who is that? That is King Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And King Agrippa II, as we mentioned previously, is of Jewish descent. But he is a completely sold-out friend of the Roman Empire. In fact, he grew up in the courts of Claudius the emperor. And he wasn't sent down into Palestine until he had finished his schooling. He's a puppet king to keep the Jews somewhat happy that they have one of their own in a position of governance. But Paul turns to King Agrippa as he now comes to the close of his public defense. And he says in verse 26, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Beloved, now Paul is doing something very different than defending himself, hoping to spare his life. Paul is now engaged in public evangelism in a room filled with onlookers. When he asks King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He is working in the context in which King Agrippa has grown up. He knows that King Agrippa has grown up learning all the Jewish prophets. King Agrippa knows scripture probably better than any of us in this room. Old Testament scripture, that is. And the question that Paul hangs around his neck 
is the very question King Agrippa needs to be asked if he will be led to salvation. Why is that question a question that will lead to salvation if the Lord is pleased to give it? Because asking King Agrippa if he believes the prophets allows him to own all of the promises of God that a Messiah would come who would be raised from the dead and break the curse that had been put upon sinful man. Because as Paul has said in this very defense earlier, and you can see it up in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 7b, he speaks of hope three different times. I'll read it to you again. <clears throat> and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God in the promise made by God to our fathers through the prophets. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Here's the point. King Agrippa had been surrounded by the words of hope all his childhood because he had to be trained in the Jewish scriptures. He had to learn the prophets. And the prophets had spoken loudly and clearly that the great hope of Israel was not that they themselves would one day obtain such perfection in the law that God would save them. No. The great hope of Israel, spoken by all the prophets, is that finally one day a Messiah would come, a man from heaven would come, a servant of Yahweh would come, a redeemer would come, and that redeemer, he would break the curse of sin and the curse of the law, that he would finally put to death the enemy of death and overcome the grave. And if you've been following us along in Acts, you've heard both Peter and Paul recite several Old Testament passages where they said, look here, the promise and hope of the resurrection was being preached by our prophets. Psalm 2, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, and many more. So when Paul turns to King Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He is pressing the king, will you yield to the promises of God and the hope that our people have been looking for, the hope of a risen Christ? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who brings our race and even the race of Gentiles into the new creation where men die no more and live for eternity in righteousness. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And he's referring to the prophetic word when he says, I know that you believe. I know you believe the word of God. Paul is being remarkably generous with King Agrippa. He's saying the best things he can say about a, a Jewish king giving him an opportunity to confess Christ. Now the king, King Agrippa knows that if he says, yes, 
I believe the word of the prophets. He knows that if he's in for a dime, he's in for a dollar. And that if he believes the word of the prophets, and therefore he has to also believe in the hope of the resurrection that all the Jewish people of whom he is one have believed. And if he believes in the hope of the resurrection, he has to believe that the resurrection is possible. And if Christ has been raised, he must confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Christ and that he is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Jews. But Agrippa said, verse 28, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian. That's his diplomatic way in a crowded room of saying, no thanks, Paul. You are not going to draw me along to confess Jesus Christ as the ordinary expected fulfillment of everything the prophets have said. He's saying, Paul, I am not in. I'm not with you. But beloved, what I want you to see here is that our apostle, the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, turns what is his public day to defend himself so he can be released. He turns it into a public day of tending upon the soul of a sinful king. Evangelism for the glory of Jesus Christ, to confess before men that Jesus is a savior for every kind of sinner and every kind of man, high-born men, high men or low-born men, all kinds of men. Paul sees this as why he is in this room, not to go home, not to get a pardon. And he certainly would be glad to have one, as he says, and we'll get to it in a minute. But he is taking his affliction. He's taking what are two of the worst years of his life, He's taking what looks like constraint and confinement, removal of freedoms. He's locked in. He's taking all of that, and he steps into it and wants to serve the advance of the kingdom of grace by speaking of salvation to his captors. Beloved, this is how wonderful and radical the gospel is. Whatever is happening in our life, is happening to us as an opportunity upon which to exalt Jesus Christ as Savior before men. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're in your 45th minute at, in line at the DMV, that you have to turn to the person next to you and go through John 3.16 with them. But that would not be a problem, would it? That wouldn't be wrong, would it? But come on, Pastor. I mean, that's, that's going to be offensive. That's gonna, people are going to think I'm nuts. Let me go back to the first sentence of my... <clears throat> the church must always be speaking of Jesus Christ in such a way that the world thinks we are out of our minds. Beloved, if Jesus Christ has been risen, if Jesus Christ holds the keys to death and Hades... If Jesus Christ right now is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, if everything that's happening in the world 
is actually ruled and ordered by him down to the smallest detail, and you find yourself going through your 44th minute in the DMV, now you're upon your 45th minute, how many minutes is it going to take you to realize that Jesus Christ, the king of all things, the lover of your soul, is the one who rules over you being in that line. Again, you don't have to, under a spirit of legal obligation, turn to the person in the line next to you and begin speaking of Jesus. But if you think that the world the Christian should live in is where that never happens because we are so amicable, that we are always wanting the approval of men, that something like that should never happen, that we should never disturb our neighbor. If you think that's the world that Christ is raised to govern, please listen carefully to what we are saying today. The Apostle Paul has an opportunity to defend himself. And what he wants to talk about is the king's soul. Pray that these things will happen. And that may be your chief participation. That you pray that the people of God, the children of God, would recognize what this world really is now that Christ has been raised. This is his world. It's always been his world. But now we can see it more clearly, can't we? This is our world. Everything that happens to us in this world is governed by him who holds the keys of death in Hades. Look what Paul finally says in verse 29. And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Not only you, King Agrippa, not only the great men in this room, but also all who hear me this day. The 100 servants who are lining the walls in this hall in Caesarea, carrying the clothes and the hats and the gloves and the staffs and the food and the snacks for all these gilded men and women, even them, I hope that even they could become such as I am, one who has been reconciled to the living God through the risen Savior who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Beloved, this is, of course, either absolute foolishness to those who hear it, because Paul has just universalized the need of salvation to everyone in that room. And you can be certain that that was an international gathering because many of the, sa- of the servants and slaves in that room were taken captive from other nations and now working for the Romans. Paul has just shown that the need of men is the same, regardless of highborn or lowborn. But he's also said that the Savior for these men who are all in the same hole of death The Savior is the same. 
It is wonderful that when Paul says this, he has already laid out before the king that he himself, Paul, was once a blasphemer and a persecutor of Jesus Christ. Paul used to be in the very spot that King Agrippa is now in, kicking against the goads of the risen Christ. And Paul says, I am no longer. King, you can be no longer. You can join me in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is our simple lesson today. We must always be speaking of Jesus Christ in such a way that the world thinks we are out of our minds. If you think it is uncouth, lacking in diplomacy, lacking winsomeness, for a man to go on trial and speak of Christ in his trial and even try to win the judge to salvation, if you think that is out of place, you need to learn better what it means that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. You need to learn better what it means to be living in a world where he has dominion over everything that's happening. This world doesn't belong to men. This world is being reconciled or it is, being, or it is passing away. The souls of the elect are being reconciled to Jesus Christ. The rest are, being, are passing away. And they shall be cast away into outer darkness. What is going on? Let us remember, there's no way to speak of Jesus that gains the approval of the world unless Jesus himself comes from his throne by his spirit and opens the heart. And it is his will to do that. It is his glad pleasure to do that in the hearts of all the elect. He just doesn't tell you where they are. So go and assume that they're everywhere. Let us pray. Father, we ask you to strengthen our own hearts about what it means to be alive on the earth in the fullness of time. What it means for each of us and how we interpret our behavior or the behavior of our apostle or the behavior of our pastor or the behavior of our children or our father or our parents. Oh, Lord, teach us what it means on how we interpret and see the behaviors of all men, especially your servants, to be alive in a world where Jesus Christ is on the throne, ordering everything for our good and for the advancement of his kingdom of grace. And, Lord, we know that you are tender, you are kind, you are merciful, you will not break a bruised reed or snuff a smoldering wick. And if any of us are feeling perhaps overly challenged to share our faith, I pray, O Lord, that you would 
Comfort them as only you can, but correct them. Lead them into their prayer closets and see that even there, they can have a strong and long ministry of praying for the advancement and the sharing of the name of Jesus Christ. That even there, they can be obedient to the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we do, we do pray that you would teach us, as Paul says, as those taught by God, to understand how it is to now live in the fullness of times, that we would indeed grow in our skill and in our courage to speak of Christ for his glory and for the gathering of all the souls that he has appointed to eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.